0: What's up? Well, I heard we're going to talk about W, George W. Butch today. Is that right? It's time. It's time. It's great time.
1: (laughs) I think this has been the episode we've been building up to for a bit. But again, it's another, it's like so much of it is like shrouded in mystery, but I'm I'm ready and I'm excited.
0: Yes, me too. I've spent so much time with this family. I'm like, oh, don't invite me to the reunion. Ah. <laughs> I don't want to go. <laughs> I mean, honestly, though,
1: like, I think George Bush's daughters, I would definitely party with them. Even though they're probably right. evil, I kind of like mean girls, you know?
0: <laughs> right. Jenna and Laura. Right. Right yes i remember since we brought them up i have to say this i remember my housemate back when um he was in office and I almost said in prison which might be (laughs) kind of the truth Um, but (laughs) we used to read the she and I used to read the um, the newspaper together in the morning and I remember her losing her mind because Jenna Bush was uh, back in rehab or she'd been caught in rehab with a small amount of crack cocaine and at first when my housemate was fuming about this she's like she got caught with a small amount of crack cocaine I was like I don't, I don't get it. What are you like so mad about? And she said, "Well, you think if I got caught with crack in rehab, they'd bother to tell you it was a small amount, right? <laughs> so,
1: right, right, so, just anyway. a little <laughs> bit, just a little <laughs> sampler of crack,
0: barely crack at all. It was just, just like, a little know. bit. She's trying, so I, that always." that always yeah <laughs> that no i would definitely party with her crack. yes i would party with her yes
1: <laughs> she sounds wild wild cards i mean <laughs> her family is a bunch wild. of wild cards but that and then at yeah. this point when you're getting to like celebrity culture and like you know tr- the millennium turning over okay i don't want to digress and just go on a tangent <laughs> i've made my point i've made my point <laughs>
0: Well, yes. So, um, good old George W. Bush. So, he is the son, he is the oldest child and oldest son of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, Poppy, and Barbara Bush, whom we have talked about quite a bit. Poppy is such a prolific politician that we can't stop talking about him in this presidency either, of course. But W, as he is called and as we will call him throughout this um, episode, was the oldest and then came. This is They had quite a few kids. They had Robin, Jeb, Neil, Marvin and Dorothy. So you don't hear a lot about uh, you hear about Jeb. Robin died um, oh no. very young yeah it's an interesting part of w's story and an interesting part of the bush family saga is she had um an incurable disease i believe it was leukemia and uh they had been trying to treat her you know of course and at one point the you know poppy and barbara realized that robin's gonna die and at the time, W is seven, and they want to make this last-ditch effort to try to save their daughter, of course. But they realize that she's she's probably going to die, and they leave and they tell W they go they you know leave Midland, Texas, and they fly to someplace in Massachusetts I, for for the medical attention. And they you know tell W it's fine, we'll be back, you know everything's going to be fine, she's going to be fine, right? And then um, she dies in Massachusetts, and they bury her there and have the funeral service and all of it. this gives me chills because they show back up in Midland, Texas, and W even recalls, you know, he's like, I could swear I saw Robin in the backseat. And then they had to get out and tell him that she was gone. So, (gasps) Oh my um, God,
1: George W. Bush, ghost whisperer. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> i know right he's like i could swear i saw her in the back seat it's like <gasps> oh, she followed them back and, yeah and so and as you know the story goes i mean they were close like he he was close to robin so that is and then you know barbara later on says you know i'll i still struggle if we made the right decision you know with little w or whatever i you know we thought we were doing what was best by um, leaving him in texas and not bringing him yeah wow I this think is that so our weird rich people are fucking <laughs> freaks if rich people are freaks and it's the 1950s i think that you know like we've come across like enough child psychology now that we're like no barbara you fucked up <laughs> <Trill>. <laughs> right? but um but i don't know at the, at the time but uh but also yeah i think rich people are are weird or uh, you know and then maybe there's just some like of them like believing, no, you know, we're so rich. We can get anything we want. Like it doesn't our kids don't die, you know, or, or whatever. Who knows? You'd have to tell yourself a miracle's coming, I would think. But at any rate, it plays into W's story, I think, in a big way. Um because I think it plays into some of his lack of motivation in one way towards things which we see uh, over and over i mean yeah what we see over and over from w i mean he becomes one of the most powerful people in the world of course but i mean for anybody besides the bush to show as much lack of interest and motivation as w showed you would fail it at, at all of life
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god right The most Um, privileged, the most white privilege. Like you don't even want to be, you're like, well, I had to become president. My dad
0: made me. Basically. (laughs) Um, Yeah, basically. So. We don't, and I I never hear anything about Dorothy. She's the youngest. I don't know. I don't know anything about her. She never comes up. The other sons do. Jeb, Neil, and Marvin do um, come up, and they do figure into some of these, some of the things that go on. Um, So, you know, he's destined, like we just said. He's destined to fulfill this... uh, fulfill this legacy and so of course there are things that have to happen. He has to go to Yale, which he does, and uh he was Skull and Bones, just like Poppy had been, just like um Prescott had been. Um so that's a big part of their it's a big part of the family legacy and it's a big you know, we talked about this in other episodes of Skull and Bones probably at one time at least, really was an occultist club. I mean they say that Prescott stole geronimo's skull and geronimo's family still it says yeah so they have it up. You know it's so fucked up so um i do think that probably at one time skull and bones was pretty dark um one of the things that i know that you did when you joined skull and bones is you would tell them you know it kind of like Scientology a little bit like you would tell them like your darkest secrets especially like your sexual secrets and so they kind of like yeah so they kind of have you on that you know so it's like for the rest of your life you know it's like we'll tell them what you did to that cow you know or whatever no, not the like, cow. no that's I'm making that up I'm making that up I'm just saying you know for like you know they kind of have you on that right um, so he did that. And then of course, after Yale, um, and, you know, I think it's well established people, you know, like it's been said throughout the media that, you know, he was, you know, cause we always call W stupid, which I don't honestly, I think he lacked motivation. I don't, I don't think he was stupid. Um, but as somebody, as somebody right so as someone had said you know they're like well you made c's at yale and somebody else said yeah it's still yale so you know teachers also right so to keep in mind that not only does yale have a higher they have a higher grading scale than regular schools like ivy league schools have a higher grading scale um so making a c at yale is a little bit more like making a b somewhere else and plus things are quite a bit harder um, than they would be at a state school. So I just want to put that out there. making a C at Yale. You know, it's, you could do worse. Okay. I guess (laughs) I will say
1: though, like, I feel like knowing how colleges like cheat grades for athletes and sports stars and stuff like, you know, he could have just been paying them off, but it doesn't, (laughs) it doesn't mean that he's not, you know, smart. Like,
0: Right, exactly, and I don't even know if those, like, those are unsubstantiated rumors there anyway. He could have very well have just been like, "Ah, he's a bush, he gets A's, you know. Yeah, I mean, but that also, like, have, what's you know, the right. point of
1: people trying to, like, assert that he's not smart, unless it was to, like, right. alleviate, like, him having responsibility for his actions, which he right. definitely does. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, no, I mean, it's really... That's really true, and I even think that, you know, it's a little bit of a ruse to this very charming man, and people leave that off. They want to talk about him being stupid more than they want to talk about the fact that he was very charming and could really get his way just kind of by flashing a smile and, you know, kind of talking his talk. One, and two, and I think this is also an important part of the Bush family story, is Poppy and Barbara, you know, they're like New England, uh, New Englanders uh, from, you know, up in in the New England coast. Right. That's their deal, which is where Yale is. Right. So they come from that background. But W actually is raised in Midland, Texas. And so his, you know, he does have. Right. So he does have this uh, fairly natural, I think, probably texas accent at least to some degree i mean if they didn't speak it in the home he certainly was around it in his community and picked it up there and so there's also this bit of i think unconsciously people don't realize that you're also just calling the southerner in the family stupid
1: that's true <laughs> people love right doing so that.
0: People love doing that, you know, but also I want to take back. There's been a charge that he was kind of a fake Texan, but not really. Yes, the family is they did move to Texas for very specific reasons having to do with business and politics, and they did want to make themselves kind of more american in a you know like more every man type style so texas has you know an oil and there's many reasons that the family moved to texas but the children were all raised in midland texas so all right so the next thing that he needs to do after yale is he needs to do his military service so this is happening 1969 Vietnam is in full swing and that and the draft is something that exists at the time. And really literally anyone can be drafted um, at this point in time. Uh, you know Elvis was drafted and like other other prominent rich people could be drafted. I think we brought this up before. I'm not a proponent of the draft, but I do like to point out, that when the draft was in effect, senators' sons did go to war. So going into Congress and voting for a war meant that your kids or your yeah. friends' kids could could potentially be in that war. Whereas after, you know, the draft w- was severed, um, now literally only poor people that they don't care about are going to go to yeah. war. Yeah. Oh my God, it's right? so fucked up it's so fucked up and so you know when you congress you want to fight a proxy war they're like yeah let's do it you know or whatever so um or you want to fight a non-proxy war i guess i should say and they're like yeah let's do it you know well, so yeah. i guess it, yeah.
1: like it is proxy to them they don't feel
0: that connection yes to thank these you people, you know <laughs> you're so right it's up. all proxy. oh shit it's <laughs> all proxy war oh my Dude, god okay. it's like
1: they're playing a. <sighs> They're playing Risk. Yeah.
0: With other people's kids, basically, and your own life. Um, so, all right. So he, W needs to do his military service, though, primarily because um, the family has a, it's a family legacy. Both Prescott and um, Poppy have fairly, as they say, illustrative um uh, careers from the military world war one and world war two right so w needs to carry this on um they're also wanting to put him into politics at some point in time and this is this also at this period of time in america there's you know um the expectation that there would be some some kind of service to country was still was still um pretty high in, in terms of politicians at least, you know even whether it was full military service or some other some other branch of government, right, or of um, service like the National Guard, which is where we go here. So, he's definitely not going to sign up for Vietnam. He definitely cannot risk the draft just to not go, right? Because I think at another time, uh, somebody like W would have been just kind of like, "I'm not going to go. I'm going to party." You know, this is right. not right. Because right, he certainly did love to party. So, um, but at this point in in time with him, ha- he would wind up in Vietnam and that just could not happen. So something else has to, to happen. So he needs to go to the National Guard. And the answer to this is the 147th National Guard unit, which is in Ellington in Houston. And it's known locally as the Champagne unit. All right. What? So... <laughs> yeah, this gets fun. So um, the thing is, is that there's already a list for people to get into the National Guard. Him wanting to go. Of course, he's a Bush. He can skip the line. That's They're not trying to have that be on the record, even though that's the sort of thing everybody knows. But even just regular National Guard has a line. The Champagne unit, the 147th, has an even longer line, right? And Bush, baby, still W, still manages to jump it. So the Champagne unit is known for what it does is it gives military service, protects rich boys from the draft. So it's the sons of billionaires. And various businessmen. It also this is interesting, it's also where the Dallas Cowboy players, like football players, go, right? Like what? you don't want to lose your football player, right? So you go to the champagne unit. And so football players, you know, a lot they're not generally wealthy, or I don't think they were at the time. Um, so but at any rate, they were very valuable. They were they, they were the wealth makers they were the talent for their very mm-hmm. rich, like, team owners, in which, you know, we won't get into this much, but sports teams have so much, and ownership of sports teams have so much to do with politics. It's kind of staggering. That's just, you know, it's just, I chose not to really get into it uh, for this particular episode, but it is very interesting, the degree to which team ownership um, has to do with politicians. Kind of fascinating. Um, so... The Dallas Cowboy players are there, and um, many of these guys actually were not pilots. And this is another funny thing, is that in the Champagne unit, they made special positions for them. You know, things you wouldn't find in other National Guard units, because generally speaking, who goes to the National Guard, generally speaking, is um, people who have already served, and they either were combat pilots, or they did, uh, or they they did supply runs right they did they did backup work during during their service in the military flying planes right so most of them generally speaking are already pilots and they enter in the national guard after their service you know for money for the extra money cuz you get paid but i would kind of imagine also that like you want to fly and probably you know getting out of the military You're not probably really going to be somebody who owns your own plane, you know, so like going to the National Guard, right, would be a way that you would still get to do to fly. I mean, I just I mean, that's my imagination, but I would imagine that flying would be very addictive and that you would really miss it when you didn't do it. That's That's what I would Right? So, um, but for these rich boys, they made up things for them, positions for them, so they could be in the National Guard without having to be pilots. But still for W, he needed to be a pilot, because he comes from a flying family, as we've talked about quite a bit. So it was just not really on the Bush family agenda for W to not be a pilot. Um, so... Poppy gets him into this thing, really. The family gets him into this champagne unit. And this is where we enter. Who enters the picture is Jim Bath. Do you remember? (gasps) Yes, yes. I do. Yes. So,
1: But maybe remind our listeners if you want to.
0: I will. So Jim Bath is someone who supposedly, this is the first time, he's introduced to the Bush family. And he goes on though, from this, from meeting W at the Champagne Unit, he goes on to uh, work as a contractor, basically for Poppy Bush. And he runs several different front operations that launder money and cover up some other nefarious uh, dealings. Also with um, Saudi ro- Saudi wealthy Saudi people, I won't say royals, but with the wealthy Saudis, two of them being one of them being Salem bin Laden. So Jim Bath, beca- who is Osama mm-hmm. bin Laden's brother, and Jim Bath uh, becomes later on after this he becomes a, a business. A business manager for Salem Bin Laden, but what Jim Bath can do is Salem Bin Laden can say purchase an airplane from the United States, and Jim Bath can sign off on it. So Salem Bin Laden's so fingerprints are nowhere on that it. That's crazy
1: that that's where they right. met. Yes. Also, I just want to say this: like, <laughs> I feel like people when you're actually like serving in the military and like doing stuff, there's probably a lot of downtime because they just come up with some really evil plans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cuz I'm just thinking think. about like like in the Oklahoma City bombing, like we talked about how, you know, there is a timeline where he could have gotten start like mixed up in all that stuff starting uh in his time over mm-hmm. in the Persian Gulf War. So they they yeah. need to give no, them some
0: absolutely. books or some video games or something. <laughs> something maybe they have maybe they have that now, yeah. um for sure. So, Jim Bath later because does all these businesses for but George Bush. He is a business. Um, I'm forgetting the name of it now, but there's a word for it liaison. Where a liaison I think that's it but where you can actually sign off you have the power to like sign these documents he also does this for Khalid Mahfouz who we had talked about before also was in on the promise software that was like that you could espionage enable so they've been watching all these banks and terrorists and things all over the world so anyway Jim Bath later on is involved with all of these people in a very big way like he's not just mopping floors all right he's signing off on their purchases and contracts all right and also for george bush uh so anyway and he's flying back and forth to saudi arabia um during that period of time but supposedly it's 1969 and he meets w for the first time in the champagne unit and the story goes like they just became buds, like, right away. And people found that they thought it was great, you know, W De- as a friend. Um, but they also, people also thought it was odd because apparently W was really known to only want to run in circles that had a comparable, like, he was very socially conscious. And so he wanted to be, he wanted to run with other rich kids, right? Like, that was, you know, so he wasn't big on the um going between the the social classes um but uh jim bath i guess was an exception to this because bath came from a fairly modest background whatever that means um but he had also already like served his time and so he was he had already served his time as a combat pilot and he was known to be like what they called at the time you call him a cracker jack right <clears throat> right when you're really good, they call you a Cracker Jack, right? Oh, I don't know if you remember that slogan? Yeah, I, don't know if I do, <laughs> to... but I learn a lot, you know, making these episodes. So, <laughs> that used to be the slogan, the commercial that was on TV for Cracker Jacks the candy, the mm-hmm. popcorn. Yeah, so when you're really good, they call you Cracker Jack. So, that's that was Jim Bath. So He was known to be like really one of the best right and so and he was in the champagne unit ostensibly to earn money and like I'm thinking probably so that he could continue to fly supposedly so um, and he's a charming guy too and they both like to party but Jim Bath is a guy who really has what it takes and he's already proven that so. Um, while they strike up this this friendship, um, what winds up happening is um, they party a little too much together, or I don't know. This gets it gets it gets it gets dicey as all things do. Um, but Uh-oh. what winds up happening? Yeah, right. So I think that there's a good. Here's what I'm about to get to. There's a good chance that Jim Bath was already acquainted with Poppy. Um, they had, um, been on the same lecture circuit, Poppy and Jim Bath had run around, you know, to Republican conferences and schools and these different things. And they had been on the circuit together, giving these lectures and speeches as early as 1966. So did he meet him there? I don't know, but there's a good chance that Jim Bath was put in the Champagne unit to be George's, to be W's minder uh, from the beginning.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I actually was Mm -hmm. thinking, like, sure, I'm sure he does love to fly, but also if you're getting placed in that unit specifically, it seems like...
0: Mm-hmm. okay,
1: you're the Cracker Jack or whatever, so uh, here's like a bunch of rich people you can network with and probably get an awesome job. Because that's all these little mm-hmm. like weenie boys do anyways. They're just like, oh, your dad has a job at your company. My dad has a job mm-hmm. at my company. Let's trade companies <laughs> and work for each other's dads. So, you know, yeah. that's like, hey, you were yeah. great at your planes or whatever. Take your pick of of the rich kids. But yeah, if it was
0: specifically also to be Something set like up that. with
1: George Bush, that makes sense to me too.
0: Right. Because I'm also thinking, you know, here's the champagne unit and like the Dallas, uh, cowboy, like, um, players, the football players are like, like literally pushing paper around on a desk. Like that's not even what national guard people do. If you're this pilot, why would you that this great pilot? Why would you want to spend your time? At the champagne unit, wouldn't you want to be around guys who, like, had been in combat like you had been and who have skills like you would have? Yeah. I don't know. He's I can't over combat. Question.
1: Well, I'll take yeah, a stab probably. at it. Yeah, he's like, I'm over <laughs> combat. I want a job where I make a lot of money now. I'm good. I made yeah. my higher-ups happy, so they gave me this gift of meeting all you rich kids.
0: Of I meeting all the rich kids, yeah. So, so very possibly Poppy put him in this position. So at any rate, Bath is, he's going up, he's flying with George, (sighs) teaching George, training George. It's hard to say exactly what happened there. Um, well, actually what had, what they spent like a million dollars to train George to fly in a, um, unit that they had, you know, t- I forget, I think it was in Georgia, and they, you know, like, usually taxpayers' money is not spent to train National Guard pilots, but they tr- they spent all of this money to train W to fly, and he actually became a second lieutenant, um, which, I'll, even though he scored uh, 25% on his flying test, and also, right, also these lieutenants usually have... Um, either 18 months of service military service or 4 years of ROTC and he didn't have either one so he's just like none of this is real right but he had so but he had been trained to fly but something he obviously wasn't good at it and so bath was going up with him they flew together all the time they were like best friends and party buddies and they flew together all the time But something starts happening in 1971. So this is a couple years into the National Guard. This is shortly after, you know, he's gotten all of this, like, high-level training, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And all of a sudden, Bush gets, like, W gets, like, cold feet or something, or vertigo or something. (sighs) But what winds up, yeah, so what winds up happening is that he starts freaking out. And he can't, he can take a plane up, but the hardest thing to do in an airplane is to land it. And so he can't do it, like, at all. Like, oh he's, like, he's locked up. And they say, the story says, that he couldn't even do it. and He couldn't even land a plane in a simulator. And a simulator, you know, doesn't, it's hooked to the ground. It's a box that you get in that's, like, got robot legs on it. You know, it, like, mimics an airplane, that's right? That's so weird. <laughs> right? I was actually in a flight simulator once, and it was absolutely amazing, and like you get turbulence and like all this stuff. They're actually really cool. But um but <clears throat> well it's but, weird but that he, he
1: had this sudden mm-hmm. mental change to flying.
0: Yes. Like what the it fuck
1: is. happened?
0: Well, that's, you know, we don't know for sure. But what what does but what does wind up happening is where anybody else would be grounded for this, or they would be, you know, taking therapy, or something else would happen with them. Um, instead, by 1972, um, he leaves Ellington Air Force Base, and he kind of goes to like hide away in uh, in Alabama at some at some I don't even know what it doesn't really say. Um, but somebody speculates, you know, he's reading manuals or whatever. But they're keeping him. Uh, away from the sight of everyone, so that nobody really comes to realize that W doesn't fly. <laughs> He's not right. He's in the Air National Guard, and he doesn't fly. You know. Um, but again, like the Champagne Unit could have accommodated that for him, but the Bush family needs this prestige of him being a second lieutenant and, and all, and, and of him being a flyboy. So. Um, so yeah, years I mean, later... all of
1: that really played into his, like, persona when he was running for president and stuff.
0: Yes. Huge. It becomes really huge. And the lies that have to go into it um, get also get equally huge. So, years later, there'll be a story concocted uh, that he was suspended from flying because he missed his annual physical. And so, what happens then is Jim Bath... Yeah, it's everybody around this
1: because it's like if you're a rich person, you can get go see a doctor at any time. So,
0: anyways, I don't need to speculate. Sorry, continue. (laughs) No, I mean, like that's true. And so, he even had this story of like, oh, well, it has to be this specific dot thing, blah blah blah. But everybody else in the National Guard was like, well, that's just not true. And, you know, right? Like, that's, you could, you know, like, if this, if you had really missed your physical, uh, what would happen is you would have, like, you know, rescheduled it. Like, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have been, like, kicked out of the guard for it. Like, you would just, you wouldn't be suspended. You wouldn't be grounded for it. That's, like, not really a thing. And so they anticipated that. And so they had Jim Bath, like, kind of take a fall with him, which is also what makes me think. He was more of a W's minder than he was just a guy hanging out. Um, was because Jim Bath, you would think, would be very proud of his record. He wouldn't want to be grounded or suspended for anything. But he said, Well, the same thing happened to me at the very same time. I too missed my physical, and I was also grounded because that happens all the time. And they kind of got away with this story for that a while. Is so- right? <laughs> Right. So because it made it seem routine. Like, well that just that happens. Happens to guys all the time, you know, and uh, I mean look at me, I'm Jim Bath, like I'm the best, you know, or whatever. I'm top I'm top notch. Don't worry, me. it's totally normal. It happens to everybody right. sometimes. <laughs> right. Right. And like as um there's a retired general named Flores who told uh Russ Baker, whom I'm getting who wrote Family of Secrets and I'm getting most of the information I'm telling you from. Um He said he'd never heard of anyone being grounded for that, much less two pilots at the same time from the same unit. He's like, yeah, no. Um, And he went on to say that the amount of resources invested in W and Bath, it defies reason that the punishment would be suspension, especially for Bath. But either way, it would be one, take it later, or two, Vietnam. That's what this guy said. He's like, you're either going to take your physical or you're going to Vietnam. There's none of this, like... Oh, they just suspended me, right? So, anyway. That's so weird. Yeah, and there's procedures for all of this. I mean, this is the military. It's not like, you know, things are not offhanded. Everything has a protocol. Everything has a chain of command. Everything is documented. So, what Flores also said was that um, there would have been paperwork that he'd met with um, to do counsel with his commander, and then he would have met with the board, and all of those things would be recorded, and apparently they're not. So, technically, what this means to the military is that you are actually AWOL from military service. So, um, I'm going to read this from BAP. Um, the future president and commander-in-chief had simply walked away from his National Guard duty via- during the Vietnam War no amount of equivocation could get around that neither could an honorable discharge received in 1973 explain why the the sole evidence that he had actually shown up anywhere after May 1972 was a machine-generated form listing dates and points earned. The fact was was his own officers had not seen him in Texas and no credible documentation or witnesses emerged in Alabama, where he supposedly was. Where were so, they? Right? <laughs> so nobody knows exactly what happened to Debbie. So questions have been raised about this, I think, a little bit along the way. Like, where did he go? What happened? But they really had it covered with this Jim bath um, kind of nonsense, you know. We talked about this with Poppy. They're good at sort of like foreseeing, you know, something like that. And if Bath was the minder at the time that he walked away and went AWOL, you know, that's when Bath would have been brought in on the suspension story just to troubleshoot for the future. Like, these are not these are not stupid people. And they are they are experienced. We've talked about this before, too. They're experienced in spycraft in espionage like they know how to do these things and at least according to Baker and some other people that I've read you know they say that these are not unusual or unique circumstances for people involved in spycraft and so what to us seems like well how could you foresee that well why would you do that none of that makes sense well you know what you're not a trained spy (laughs) you know skeptics yeah, right. Yeah, right? um <laughs> um so what um so all of this does come back though in 1994 and then again in 2000 because of course in 1994 w is going to run for governor and then in 2000 He makes his first, you know, run for president. So it does come back to him. And then everybody wonders, too, was it nerves or drugs? And because they were Mm. doing plenty of cocaine at the time. And even Bath's ex-wife had made allegations in their formal divorce proceedings, like it's in the paperwork, that cocaine use had affected Jim Bath's life and relationships. So that, and that would have been during that time. And I believe, you know, she was saying that it affected everything, it affected our relationship, his work, everything. So I think there's pretty good evidence that, um, they're probably getting that I good, mean, the at least, cocaine too. Yeah. You know, that they were hanging out, they were partying and they were buds and they were doing the blow and this affected like everything. I would not party with them. I just want to say, I would not
1: (laughs) party with them.
0: Definitely not. No, No, that would be horrible. It would be what a horrible time. It would would be be totally awful. awful. Um. So, all right. So there, but he nonetheless w is honorably discharged in 1973, even though nothing of his. Um, tenure in the National Guard makes any sense at all, or <laughs> even seems to have a paper trail. Well, okay. <laughs> okay. So, but supposedly, if you believe that Jim Bath was just kind of there, because he was there, um, what does happen, though, is maybe, this may be Poppy's so grateful that Jim took this dive, basically, in his own career, for W that Poppy repays him um, by bringing him in. Could be. Could be. We don't know. I tend to fall a little bit more on Jim Bath was waiting for W there. Like, hey, you know, was a bit of a handler. I tend to fall on that side of it. But even if not, there's a good reason. Poppy is also known for showing his appreciation to people who do any favors for him. Right? Poppy's real good at this stuff real good and so um it's also very possible that he was like i just want to thank you for the rest of your life jim bath and we're bringing Ooh. you in you know to the fam right you're one of us now and so god forbid 19. you uh cross any of them yeah absolutely but i don't think bath ever does <laughs> bath seems pretty contented um you know making this dough throughout his lifetime um But, um, so in 1977, though, Jim Bath, uh, purchased on behalf of Salem bin Laden, this is interesting, he purchases the the Houston Gulf airport, which is a small airport. Okay. Um, Right. So it looks like it's owned by Jim Bath's, um, front company, um, which is a real estate company. So that all makes sense. Right. But it's actually owned by Osama bin Laden's brother. Alright, so um, this is for this is from Baker also. Since the Federal Aviation Administration will certify only planes owned by Americans, Bath acted as the front man for Saudi aviation purchases. In nineteen seventy seven, ostensibly on behalf of Salem bin Laden, Bath bought the Houston Gulf Airport, a small private facility in League, Texas, League City, Texas, twenty five miles east of Houston. Bath also bought aircraft for bin Laden. Upon purchase, Bath immediately renovated the airport and extended and reinforced the runway to accommodate what he referred to as heavy iron, large corporate jets, and even light commercial aircraft. Bath bragged that Houston Gulf, unlike the city's other airports, had no U.S. Customs presence. Oh this my Right? This absence of oversight could prove handy in many instances another property Bath bought as front man for the Saudis was the express auto park garage at Houston Hobby Airport so that's a pretty big deal so like he owns this garage at Houston Hobby so even he can park even if they are flying straight out of Houston Hobby he can park their cars there nobody's going to know that they're there like it's, it's, it's pretty incredible the way, um, the way these things are fronted for them. So, um, that is really, so,
1: really a lot. Yeah, for sure. It's a lot. So Saudi and funded so cover wild. for American
0: intelligence.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it's like, why when 9-11 happened, why was nobody talking about that?
0: right right
1: because that's just so crazy to me that like and they're doing they're like osama bin laden number one enemy of the world mm -hmm. p.s his brother owns an airport (laughs) in texas right but don't
0: we're just not gonna talk about that i'm sure it doesn't have anything to do with anything and you know that's one that we know about. It doesn't mean that there aren't more, and there are. You know, there are other rich Saudis. Rather, whether they're because the Bin Ladens, you know, there's lots of Bin Ladens. That's a that they're a huge, you know, family. Right, they're in, a big family. Saudi yeah, Osama Bin Laden himself is one of fifty-four half siblings. So, um, so you know the way they do it in Saudi Arabia. so, um, so the bin Laden family is, is, is large um, but but they're also very very wealthy. you know we can't we were kind of sold this image of Osama bin Laden like he's this crazy caveman and maybe he kind of became that in Afghanistan. We'll get to that a little bit later. but that's not what he comes from. Like he was a very pampered wealthy son. in in Saudi Arabia. So also that airport that's purchased in 1977, it comes into play during Iran-Contras too, which is part of the Reagan White House. We haven't talked a lot about Iran-Contras, maybe someday we will, but at any rate, that's guns for drugs, proxy war, Mm -hmm. you know, for, I think most people know a little bit something about that. Um, But this airport came into effect uh, for that um, event also. So, Bath was a vehicle through which Osama bin Laden's brother owned a CIA-connected airline. That's what happens. I mean, that's just wild. I mean, you're right. And that's happening in 1977, at the time that Poppy Bush is officially the head of the CIA for a hot minute, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's official. That's on paper. So, that's what's happening. That's what's happening now. Um, At that point in time. So, all right. So the National Guard problem comes up again in 1994 when W is running for the governor of Texas. This is interesting because this shows how, how they roll. It shows how this family rolls. So an Austin reporter digs all this up. We're in 1994 now, and an Austin reporter asked W, as he's running for governor, He asked him how he managed to get into the 147s, (laughs) you know, because it's a good question. You know, this Mm -hmm. guy's like, so how did you, you didn't have any of the stuff you needed to get in there. How did you do that? You know, and, uh, you know, he answers it simply by saying, you know, it wasn't favoritism. I honorably served and that's that. And then nobody asked any follow-up questions, you know, right? So, so it seems like that's over. It's dead in the water. That's his answer. I honorably served. There's no problem. Let's carry on. Right. Mm -hmm. but the moment the debate ends the communication manager comes and this is a guy named Moore and so this is intense and so this communications manager approaches this um approaches this i'm sorry Moore is the reporter and so the communications manager from W's campaign gets a hold of this reporter after he dares to ask this question right so it's Karen Hughes is the woman who she plays, she figures him prominently to a lot of things. So Karen just makes a beeline for me and gets in my face and tries to separate me from the crowd, Moore said. Then she starts a rant. What kind of question is that? What did you ask that? Why did you ask that question? Who do you think you are? That's just not relevant to being governor of Texas. He's not trying to run the federal government. He's going to run the state of Texas. What does his service in the National Guard have to do with anything? He doesn't have an army to run here in Texas. Why would you ask such a question, Jim? <laughs> right? like, oh, that's, okay. That's, that's how they do ya, Defensive. you. Defensive. Know? Right. And so in response, he says to her, it's about character, Karen. It's about his generation and mine coming of age and how we dealt with what we all viewed as a bad war. Mm-hmm. As the reporter was turning to go file his story, Bush's chief strategist, here's where things get super fun, Carl Rove, right? Oh, here he so comes. this here he comes, you know, and so Carl Rove gets a hold of him too and says, What was that question more? And I said, Well, you know what it was, Carl. I said, It's a fair question. And he said it wasn't fair, it doesn't have anything to do with anything. And his his rant was less energized than Karen, but it was the same thing, trying to say, You're stupid. You're a yokel local and you're stupid and you don't know what you're doing. Whoa. Bush's handlers thought they could get reporters off a story by intimidating them, and often they turn out to be right. I think it's so important where Moore says, you know, he's trying to tell me I'm stupid. I think that the gaslighting in that, especially since nobody asked any other questions, like he wasn't backed up by his own reporters, like, and you got these two people coming at you, separating you from the crowd, basically in your face, like... Even people who know they're really good at their job, when you're put in a situation where like, kind of what you're what you expect and what seems reasonable to you is brought into question by everyone around you, and the other reporters are bringing it into question by not following up, by having yeah. no curiosity about yeah. it, right? So you could really doubt yourself. And this guy knew that, you know. He's he's saying, you know, like, here's what they were saying to me. Here's where the intimidation is coming in. I'm supposed to second guess myself, but I don't think this guy ever, ever really did. So, um, just, it's so much bullying and just, you know, tricking them would be another thing that they would do. They would trick journalists, um, with like info dumps, which this is kind of an interesting, like if a reporter asked for something, um, they would just give them tons, boxes and boxes of information, right. And sometimes, you know, double and triple of the same documents so that you just have so much paperwork. You just have so much paper. You just have so many like things to look through. For... Yeah. And it's like, it's a that's a good one. Like, I know, I, you know, I read a story about a guy who used that with the FBI. The FBI was trying to intimidate him. And they would just, like, call him every few weeks and ask him for, like, another document, another document. Another, you know, just to, like, remind him that they're still, like, watching him or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. to just scare him. And so finally, this went on for, like, a year and a half or something. And finally, one day, he's like, I sent him everything in my house. I sent him my high school yearbooks. I sent him every letter. I sent him every piece of paper in my house. And I never heard from him again. You know, because, like, then he could just be like, oh, I've got it. It's in your box. You've got it. Or whatever. So, info dumps can work for regular people. <laughs> but, um, but that's what um, I traveled in this when I was tutoring many years ago late nineties, we were in this rig that just like this truck and this camper that was very clearly not road safe. And so we would get pulled over pretty often. And the guy who, (laughs) yeah, well, the guy who owned the whole setup or whatever, he had this down and he was so calm and relaxed. It was one of the most amazing things I ever saw, you know, and he would lean over to the glove box and he would pull out this stack of papers and he'd just be like, well, And he would start handing the cop all these things and explaining all this stuff. And, like, I saw him do it twice. I know he did it more than that, but I saw it twice. And both times the cop was like, oh, well, okay. Well, all right. Well, all right. Here you go. And just handed it back and let us go. Because it was just like... He sounded like he knew what he was talking about. And the cop was like, I'm not going to go. <laughs> I'm not going to try to figure this out. This is too yeah. much for me. So, I don't want to read go. all Tip. this. I don't want to report yeah. that I read all this. Yes. Honestly. So there you go, folks. Don't say you don't get tips here on Secret Antenna. <laughs> um, so um, they would also stonewall, stonewall and exiled journalists um, who asked hard to answer questions. I mean... And that definitely runs through to this day, you know, that like, I mean, I think at another point in history, um, reporters, you know, you could go ask the White House questions. They'd have these press conferences that were open to reporters. You know, I'm sure you had to have some certain credentials, but if you work for the paper, you could get in there and and ask whatever questions you want. But these days, and this has been going on for a long time, you've got to be on their list. To get, even get into the press conference. So if the White House knows you're hostile to them, you don't get into their press conferences. Which right there, you know, like people, I mean, like that, what does that sound like as an American person? Like our reporters, we all can only have friendly reporters asking the White House questions. Does that sound like a free press? Does that sound, you know, like, right? So, um, but anyway, they would stonewall journalists, and um, you know, just run all these things. So, and basic just covert operations of disinformation, which we know they're really good at. So, you know, you serve up some disinformation to a reporter. Who then reports on it, and then it comes back, and you find, and it's like, well, that's not even right. You just ruined that reporter, right? Yeah. Ruined, which mm-hmm. is the story that we're going to get to now. We're skipping way ahead. This is he's been governor, he's been president for one term at this point, and so we're in we're in 2004. But I'm still talking about the journalism thing. So in 2004, when he was campaigning for reelection. Mary Maves, who was a producer at CBS, and she was kind of up and coming because she had, or pretty well established, I guess, because she had initially broke the story about prisoner abuse at Abu Ghraib, even though at the time... Uh, CBS didn't publish it yet because they just had cold feet on it, I guess. But then when they heard uh. the New York Times was going to go forward, then CBS published it. So even though she technically broke the story, it was, I think, Seymour Hersh who got the, who got the real accolades on it. But yeah. at, at any rate, I know, right? So, um, but at any rate, she was the one who had broke that story. And um, she was on to this fake military service of W also, because it really, it shows so much. It's not just a draft dodge. It's, you know, it really is this very in-depth, you have a fake pilot from, you know, this family who's just throwing, um, uh, you know, he's a second lieutenant. Like, he didn't earn any of that. So, like, this story is actually really a big deal, especially for a president who now is, as Karen Hughes had said before, She said, well, you know, he's he's leading Texas, not he's not the commander in chief. Well, now he is. Right? Right, And he's the commander in chief who's in the middle of a war. Right. And right. So Mary. Started a war.
1: Well, continuing a war,
0: yeah. Yeah. So she goes after the military service of W and what happens becomes known as Memo Gate, or also Rather Gate. Um, which I don't know if you even remember. Do you know who Dan Rather is? Do you remember yes, Dan Rather? Yes, yes. Okay, Absolutely. all right. Because, like, cool, because I kind of have forgot about Dan Rather, but, you know, I really grew up with, like, Dan Rather's, like, voice in the background of my life. You know, Dan Rather was highly respected. Um, yeah, definitely. I guess, you know, anchor, journalist anchor um, on 60 Minutes, which used to also be a, a very highly respected um, journalist show. So, um, but anyway, this is actually what ruined him. And I had kind of forgotten this story. Um, but what they did is the Bush family, this is, they're so crazy. They made fake documents, um, that confirm what the journalists had known for years. Um, so this guy named Bill Burkett is like a, um, he's a fake, um, he's a plant, he's a mole, but he's faking like, I'm a source, right? And so he's leading these, um, these journalists on, these, these high-level, at the time, respected journalists. And he's leading them on. He's like, now I have these documents, I have these documents, and it has to do with the sub- subject of the Guard Service. And the documents confirm what all of these reporters suspect, right? And so finally, you know, he turns them over to, to Mary Mapes. Who, uh, you know, faxes them off. And she even says, like, I want to do more. I want to do more on this before we release them. I want to look into this more. But her news source goes ahead and puts it out. Mary Mapes. I'm so sorry that she had to work for CBS because they must be awful Um, (laughs) because they screwed her a lot so let me read this little part from this paragraph from Baker so what happened next morphed into an epic scandal that would soon overwhelm questions about Bush and influence media coverage for the rest of the election there would be many casualties CBS anchorman rather producer mapes and three other CBS staffers were fired or dismissed Bill Burkett would become a pariah and his life would collapse around him As such, he became yet another in a long line of people who had stood up to the bushes and suffered the consequences. I'm sorry, Bill Burkett was not the mole. He was, um, I guess he was the reporter who brought it in, brought the story in, and Mapes broke it. So, anyway, but at this point in time, um, this is what winds up, because Dan Rather reported it, and so it absolutely ruined um, Dan Rather's Dan Rather's career, and I just wow. find that right, absolutely amazing. Wait, and so, so what, what they year ha- was this? Do this was two thousand four. Okay, and so the Bush family had made these fake documents, um, had set up this whole sting, basically. I guess is what you want to call it. CBS reports on it, um, or whoever's running. Yeah, that 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 news outlet, network news outlet, reports on it. And then the Bush family comes back with well those documents are fake and it can be it's then proved that the documents were indeed fake, even though they contained all of the information that we know to be most likely is true about George W. Bush. You see how sneaky this is?
1: Yeah. And then this they ruined gr-
0: I mean honestly
1: It's a bold plan, first of all. It's very like Mm -hmm. dangling it in front of their faces just to only take it away. It's like a cat playing with its mouse that it's about to eat or whatever, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is. And it sends such a message to everyone. They're like, well, look what, if we can do it to Dan Rather, what do you think we're going to do to you? You know what I mean? God. Right. And so, and, there and the news, news are really writer. sucks nowadays. Like the news, yeah, fucking it does. Blows. It does. It really sucks. And these are reasons why it really sucks. Like, um, you know what can you know Dan, all these reporters going down because the Bush family like strategically took them down, and you know not being able, to, you know, only friendly people can get invited to these press conferences. Friendly journalists, you know. So like, of course, our news really sucks. And I think, like, it was just, I looked this up today, too. I think there was even a judge, like, just let um, Rachel Maddow off for something. It wasn't defamation because her audience expects her to use hyperbole. Right. So know that, like, what it she's was saying like is her and
1: Tucker Carlson got, like, let off
0: of stuff like that because they argue that their yeah. show, like, wasn't news. Right. Like her audience expects her to not. They get it that it's not like you know. It's hyperbole. That's I guess is the way. Insane. It's insane, and I'm like, that's when. How does that work like that? You know. So, anyway, but this is kind of the reason why it does work like that. You know. So anyway, um, that's that's that. Um, so there was another writer who was an authorized biography biographer of um of Bush of W. And he had Mickey Herkowitz and he was writing a book about um about W that was authorized and he had um you know and he was friendly he loved the Bush family he'd done other work for them um so this was all on the level but what had happened was in some of his he turned in his first ten chapters and in it, George W. Bush had actually admitted to Herkowitz, Well, I never flew again. Like after he got that cold feet in 71. Oh, like he said it himself I never flew again, military R, you know, commercial, right? Herkowitz didn't think anything of it, you know, and he just put it in the book. And then another thing that Bush's people were angry about is that Herkowitz had characterized the oil businesses as floundering, which was true. And anybody in politics or business knew that W's oil companies were floundering. They were failures and or fronts, however you wanted to look at that. Um, so Harkowitz, again, didn't think that that was um, something he couldn't say, but they didn't, they didn't like that. And so um, what happened was they confiscated all of his work, they confiscated the 10 chapters, Yanked the book away from him, you know, gave him a warning, right? And then about continuing forward. But they wanted everything he had. And then plus to delete, scrap, get rid of uh, whatever, whatever he might have laying around so there wouldn't be any evidence. And then Karen Hughes, who went after that other reporter, right? Who do you think you are? Uh-huh. She wrote the book. And she put oh. it. Down. And so, yeah. Oh, and so no. then, too... I know, right? And what's funny is here you have Poppy then um, doing his Poppy thing. And he's like, hey, Mickey, you know, listen, I know it's a disappointing time. I'll tell you what. Why don't you write a book about my father, Prescott, which Herkowitz did. So, like, that's, um, you know, that's how Poppy comes in where he's like, hey, look, man, no hard feelings. Right. Right. This is what Poppy's super good at. Whereas Bush can be, you know, charming over some cocktails and you know, kind of down home, like Texan. Poppy Bush is like he's real good with the, you know, with the real, with the thank you notes, so to speak. Okay. Right? So. <laughs> However you want to put that. So, all right. Well, at any rate, um, I am going to. That's how they handle. That's how they handle the uh, the press. So obviously, the Bush family has the press in their pocket and they have for a long time it just really by 2004 um there was no stopping them they had really shut down any any press that anyone was going to do on them including um including later on this biography about w that was shut down also and he was out of office by then
1: wow
0: you know so they're still they're still controlling this um. All right. So we're gonna talk about Saddam Hussein a little bit, and I'm okay, to, enter okay. Saddam. Stage <laughs> left, right, and so, um, so we're gonna back up to Poppy's White House a little bit, just, just because. Like, here's the thing, and this is just winds up being really the truth. Poppy George H W Bush, really, from what I can tell ran the White House for no less than 20 years, maybe more. So he ran it as vice president in the Reagan administration. Then he had it his own for four years. And then he really ran W's White House. Like I said, W is extraordinarily unmotivated. And he seems to be disinterested in many things. Um, He'll serve at some point in time. He serves we'll talk about the carlisle group too but he serves three years on the board of the carlisle group which is an investment bank that's a big deal between the bushes and the saudis right and even the guy who runs that eventually after three years he's like i just like you don't you're not interested like i don't know why you're here and and you know w is like yeah, Debbie's like you're right. I'm gonna, I'm leaving. I, I don't like this business. I don't like being, you know. And it's just like, it's just like that's like everything he's done in his life. Has if it really, if it wasn't like a kegger or being um, very charming with other charming people, I don't think he really cared about it. I think he liked to party. He liked to socialize. I think there was a chance he enjoyed being an orator. You know, I think he perhaps liked being um a public politician having that attention but when it came to any kind of work like i don't you know he didn't care about flying planes he didn't care about serving on the board of an investment i don't think he cared about being president like he just didn't care so anyway not stupid unmotivated i mean i
1: (laughs) fucking relate to
0: that uh (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, I mean, true. And, you know, and I really do. In looking at him and thinking about the situation with the death of his sister, I honestly am like, I don't know. I mean, because, like, his parents are not addicts. Like, you know, like, they didn't, that's not what they do. They're not unmotivated. Like, I just kind of feel like that says something, like, that incident in his childhood has something to do with, like, kind of how he was like, you know, fuck it. I don't know. Just Aww, my, I hate my feeling bad opinion. for him. Right? I know. I. But you've heard me say this before about him. Out of everybody in the W family or in the Bush family, I think W was the one that would, like, sometimes, you know, had that, like, damn, that's cold-blooded. But that doesn't mean he gave a fuck. It just means that I think he actually noticed. Like, I feel like Poppy Bush had all of this. Like, Poppy was, like... These are the reasons why what we do is right and good for the world. And I think W was a little, you know, again, just my personal opinion. W was a little bit more like, well, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you, I guess. But come on, that's pretty cold-blooded, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) um, all right. So we're backing up to Poppy's uh, White House a little bit. One of them anyway. And so... Throughout the Reagan Poppy Bush years the White House had been an eager backer of Saddam. The two administrations have provided millions of dollars in aid and have permitted the export of US technology that Iraq used to build a massive arsenal of chemical, biological, and possibly nuclear weapons. Uh... So this right, I know. And so in a paradoxical twist, when W sought to justify the invasion of Iraq in 2003, he cited those same weapons without mentioning that his own father had helped to provide them. He also failed to mention what many proliferation experts correctly believed, that most or all of those weapons had been destroyed as part of Saddam's scale down after the imposition of the no-fly zones and President Clinton's own threats to invade. So,
1: Hmm.
0: all of this is important, you know, leading up to this place. So, when W is out on the world saying, well, we gotta go in, they have weapons of mass destruction, he's talking about something in the past that his father was part of. I just, I find that a fascinating... um, He's like, we know they have them because we got them them for them. Yeah. Yep. All right. So, um, that happens. I mean, that's the, the lead up to like, we need to attack Saddam. You know, that starts early. That starts before... W really gets in office, but the 2000 election, you know, as itself is widely considered stolen. Um, God, I remember Gore's concession was so pathetic. Um, But, right, I just, I remember it really well, and I even remember Democrats in my life, who I knew personally, who were, like, mad about the recounts, like, just because they thought it looked bad they thought gore should have some dignity and conceit and that's really what was in the media at the time right this very like controlled media was even kind of promoting that idea that gore was just making himself look foolish he was looking like a sore loser and you know i remember very well because i was like what like one of the things i always said was like You know that the right would never do that, right? They would fight tooth and nail. And I mean, do I wind up being prescient on that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think you do. (laughs) Right? So, you know, like, they wouldn't give up. And but his own people, his own voters really thought he should give up. So there's that. The Hanging Chads spectacle, I'll never forget that. I think of the Hanging Chads every once in a while. Do you remember that? No.
1: What's the Hanging Chads?
0: You <laughs> well, used to be, you know, you go in and you voted, um, you would stick this little needle through, um, through a, a card in this kind of contraption, right? So you had this little needle that you voted with and it would knock a hole out of where you voted for somebody and so they were trying to recount looking at these cards they were trying to go through these recounts right. And there were, okay right i remember this and, now and some of them were like well no look they voted for bush but there's a hanging chad and the chad was the little piece of paper that didn't pop all the way out right right and i was just i just god i can remember just laughing my ass off at like what are we Ridiculous spectacle it all was and every once in a while that'll go through my mind i'm like damn hanging chad yeah that's that's Um, so wild right um so someone else who was already a big player on the global terrorism scene was osama bin laden of course they already knew about osama bin laden i mean during the 90s they knew about osama bin laden um, and as I say, they're one of the richest families in Saudi Arabia. Um, but what's happening now, starting in this was 1984, so by the time like Bush is getting into the White House, Osama bin Laden's pretty powerful at this point in time. And he's been talked about all through the 90s um, his various uh, terrorist activities, right? So but in 1984, Osama founded um, Maktab al-Kmek. Um, with uh, Abdullah Yusuf Azam, so who was a Palestinian man who was also a an Islamic scholar and a theologian, um, known sometimes this is uh, uh, Abdullah Yusuf Azam is sometimes known as the father of global terrorism. All right, so father of global terrorism, and he and Osama bin Laden found this thing that goes by the Mac. All right, so. Um, Abdullah Yosef Azam is a hes a jihadist, which is, for anybody who doesn't know, jihad means it's a struggle against, in this case, a struggle against the enemies of Islam, um, but it can also be a struggle against the self, against sin, or simply struggle. So jihad can have few meanings but in this particular sense it means um, the struggle against the enemies of Islam and that was this guy and he and Osama started the MAC which is the precursor to Al Qaeda and its mission was to recruit foreign volunteers for the war against the Soviets in Afghanistan and so um, they end up being in alignment with the Mujahideen which are the guerrilla fighters in Afghanistan who are fighting against Soviet rule in Afghanistan in the 80s, which the United States is funding a large part of the Mujahideen. OK, so like. The U.S. is already in this thing. And mm-hmm. then there is Osama bin Laden and the Mac right, which is they're serving, they're fighting also against the Soviets, right, so that's where these two things really start to line up, but I want to be, you know, clear, like what the United States has in common, because this is a proxy war too, right, and this is their proxy war against the Soviets, before, because the Cold War is still happening in the 80s, and so United States is funding this, and they're in alignment, at this point, with Osama bin Laden. So, this is like, this is how all of this, when it comes to money, and it comes to alignment and companies, and politics, and wars, all of these things. This, what leads up to the, a final attack on the Trade Towers in 2001, is convoluted. Like it's it really it's a very complicated web that does not have a straight line because at this point in time, the United States is not going to have any problem if they find out that money is going to Osama bin Laden. And we also don't know that they're not really directly funding that. We know the Saudis are because Osama bin Laden is a Saudi and the Saudis are also against the Soviets in Afghanistan. And so are many of the Afghani people. Like the Soviet, um, it's an occupation. Like mm-hmm. that's not right. So it's not it's I mean some Afghanis like that government and some of them don't. But at any rate it was imposed on the people of of Afghanistan. So these kinds of alignments have a way of spiraling out of control, which is later what Bhutto, the Prime Minister of, of Pakistan, you know, winds up saying is she's like, It's gone too far. You to the United States, she had said, you know, it's gone too far. Like you have to pull it back. Like, yes, they've had your interests in mind now for a long time. You've had this alignment, at least against the Soviets. But you don't, like, the U.S. is not aligned with Islamic fundamentalism, you know, right? Is it? So, um, the U.S. had been warned a long time ago. Like, you need to pull back the reins on this. You need to stop funding these things. But they didn't. Um, So, the MAC winds up being linked to the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. um, Which is enough evidence right there against Osama bin Laden. But by this time, um, like I say, by the time, by during the 90s, he's, he's the most known terrorist in the, in the entire world. And a lot of people uh, fear what Osama bin Laden and the MAP at that time is going to do. So um, this attack on the World Trade Center, among many around the world, immediately connect bin Laden to, to the eventual final attack. On the trade towers, um, and because of Bin Laden's wealthy background, he was sometimes called the Gucci terrorist, which is no, kind of, yeah, they call him the Gucci terrorist. Um, the CIA, the Bushes, the Mujahideen. Um, were guerrilla forces on the ground in Afghanistan. Osama bin Laden had the common goal to defeat the Soviets. So the MAC is the precursor to Al-Qaeda and its mission was to recruit foreign volunteers for the war against the Soviets in Afghanistan. And so um, you have the CIA, which is the Bush family, you have the Mahajadeen, which is the guerrilla forces, And they're all in Afghanistan, and they are united at at this point in time, during the 80s. And what really changes things, you know, because this has been a long war against the Soviet occupation. And so, against the Soviet government. So, what happens at the end of the 80s is um, Ronald Reagan sends these guys... Um, these guerrilla fighters, which probably includes some of these people of the MAC. And you know, you got to think about it, you know, like on the ground, like if you and I, I might be the Mahajadeen and like I'm getting money from the US and you're the MAC and you're not, but I've got stuff that you can use to fight our common goal. I'm going to provide those things to you, right? Um, you know what I'm saying? So, like, even if they weren't intentionally. Um, uh, providing money to the MAC uh, they were just by virtue of how things actually work on the ground right so (laughs) one of the things that they got this is so crazy to me but they got these things called stinger missiles which is a backpack that shoots a missile that can take down like million dollar planes right out of the sky and so this changes the whole game This actually winds up being what ends the Cold War in some ways, because what happened at that point was it became much too expensive for the Soviets to continue to fight in Afghanistan. And so because these guys, they could put on this backpack with this missile, like it wasn't huge equipment and the U.S. was giving it to them. Whoa. So the Reagan White House, right? Abby Bush, right? So um, anyway, um, against their common enemies, you know? So um, anyway, that's basically how that war ended, from what I can tell, is one of the, uh, or how, you know, how the, how the Afghani people... And the freedom fighters and the MAC and the CIA, you know, won the war against the Soviets in Afghanistan, is the Stinger missile. And so, the, you know, at that point, the Soviets are like, yeah, we can't do that. I can't send, how many million dollar planes can you send? You know, anyway, um, I think that's interesting. But um, also, I don't know. Also quite a way to... I mean, can you imagine getting that, being a guerrilla fighter, and all of a sudden you're like, holy shit! (laughs) I
1: have this giant
0: missile! (laughs) Yeah, that would be crazy. Yeah, it'd be crazy. Um, So anyway, that winds up kind of leading to this, this, uh, you know, ending the Cold War in some ways, which I know in the past I'd said, you know, Poppy kind of inherited that... That moment in 1989 when the when the Cold War ended, but then as I do mm. more research on it, I'm like, well, maybe that's not the right maybe way to he say it. it. <laughs> maybe he did. Yeah. <laughs> maybe he did. Maybe he timed uh, it is... because he
1: wanted credit for his like secret mission. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, you no, I mean, pro, I mean, you might not be wrong about that. They're pretty good at that kind of shit, yeah. right? So, um, so this is still pre-Al Qaeda, um, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to read a little bit from Craig Unger's book, House of Bush, House of Saad, which is a crazy book, which is also part of why like it's hard like it's hard to keep on the timeline. I have to jump around from with topics because of like it's so. Dense and intense. What yeah. happened in in this story? So this is from Ungar, and he says, not long after Poppy took office in 1989, Poppy was warned about exactly this possibility by someone in a position to know, and that's that there would be an attack. Displeased that the president continued to support extremist, radical Muslims, Pakistani Prime Minister uh, Benazar Bhutto let him know about the dangers, arming the Mujahideen. Might initially have been the right thing, she told Bush, but she explained that extremists, so emboldened by the United States during the 80s, are now exporting their terrorism to other parts of the world to the extent that we that they use heroin trafficking to pay for their exploits. Mm. So, right. So, this is a big a part of what we're what's happening now. Like, one of the reasons that the Taliban was able to rise to power, and it's not that the Taliban doesn't use heroin export from Afghanistan to support themselves, it's not that they're not drug dealers, I'm not saying that, but at one point in time, uh, they had been, Afghanistan had been the producers of 40%, of the world's heroin supply which there's legitimate uses of heroin also so it's not just illicit like drug use um you know hospitals and things use it so um they were producing 40 percent um once the um you know americans and soviets were in there it went up to 90 percent and it was destroying what yes and heroin and heroin use And drug dealing and all of these things were absolutely tearing Afghanistan apart. And so one of the ways that the Taliban was able to rise is that they had, they were ones that had the power and the might to turn that around and bring the heroin production down. And anyway. it all goes back to the '80s. Like what's happening right now is rooted, you know, probably before that. But at any rate, all of, none of this is happening without these outside influences. These very wealthy outside influences, in particular, in the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, are have a big hand in in all of these things that are going on. At a certain point also in this game, the Saudi Arabia strips uh, Osama bin Laden of his citizenship, uh, which happens in, I think, the early 90s, and they start to dissociate from Osama bin Laden. One of the things, some of the things that get said about Osama bin Laden is that his experiences in Afghanistan, because I have to continuously remind myself and everyone else, he is Saudi Arabian. He is Saudi Arabian wealth. He's the Gucci terrorist from somewhere else. I just, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. But, right. So, uh but everybody kind of says this, it seems like, about Osama bin Laden. He had been deeply radicalized by his experiences with the Soviets, and, in, and who apparently were very brutal in Afghanistan. And um, no doubt also from his buddy that he ran the MAC with, um, who was an Islamic fundamentalist, of straight-up jihadist. So um, I'm sure that those two things together um, changed who Osama bin Laden was. By all accounts, people say that's true from people who fought with him to his family in Saudi Arabia. But his family in Saudi Arabia, you know, there's a lot of them. You got 54 kids. You're like, I'm cutting that one loose, I guess, or whatever. (laughs) Like, I'm good. Um, Because they did disown him. And they disowned him prior to the first bombing of of the World Trade Center in '93. So this is also from... Carl Unger and uh, it says the Clinton administration realized that bin Laden had radically redefined the way terrorism worked. He was not just underwriting bombings he was also running huge training camps for terrorists and had to set up a network to finance them. With his al-Qaeda operatives he could ship massive quantities of arms across international borders and use suicide bombers To engage in sophisticated feats of asymmetrical warfare. He was even trying to obtain materials for nuclear weapons and to develop develop chemical arms. Moreover, he and his network embodied a new transnational entity, an Islamic fundamentalist army that was state free. With bin Laden in the saddle, no longer were terrorists dependent on state sponsors. In Sudan and later in Afghanistan, it was he who helped out the government financially, not the other way around. Oh. Right. Whoa. I know. So bin Laden and bin Laden specifically and al-Qaeda in general marks the first time in world history that there has been a terrorist organization that was um, free floating. That was absolutely sovereign from any other nation. So Autonomous Zone. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, it is it's a polo. It's Holy a shit. polo. It can be done. <laughs> well I mean that's definitely what um uh, bin Laden said about it. So um yeah i guess we'll leave you with that for this portion of the of the bush saga thank you everyone for putting up with me um oh my so much god more no. to tell you. thank you i <laughs> i love like
1: i mean it's really like the details are what they're trying to like keep away yes. from people So it is really interesting to, like, have all these details laid out and put together about George Bush specifically, like, W specifically, because they really don't want you to put these pieces together. But, Michelle, you're doing it. And just because you're jumping around, I mean, they're not making it easy for anybody. So
0: get it where you can. No, and... I mean they're not and they're trying to cover the details and also the context like I try to contextualize some of these like where some of the conclusions are coming from because they sound our potential conclusions because they sound unrealistic unless you know how they operate and then you're like oh that sounds like a boost that sounds like something they would do so yes details and context are really everything in this story so yes thank you. Bye Kelly. Okay, Why thanks you, for everything. I'll tell you to rest next time. All Yay, right. Alright, bye. can Bye. <laughs>